0: Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel, looking at 1 Samuel 7, 2 through 17. Robert Robinson was born in 1735, and he grew up in London, England. After his father's death, when he was still young, he had to start working. And along with that, he fell in with some bad companions. One day, he and his companions harassed a drunken gypsy and demanded that she tell all of them their fortunes for free. When it came to Robert, the gypsy pointed at him and told him that he would live to see his children and his grandchildren. And at that time in England, that was by no means a guarantee. This made him realize that he needed to change his way of living. A few nights later, he went to a tent meeting to hear a Methodist preacher, a Methodist preacher by the name of George Whitefield. He went, intending to heckle those who were there for the gathering, but he left, feeling that Whitefield was preaching to him alone. At the age of 20, Robert made peace with God, and he ended up becoming a preacher himself. Two years later, in 1757, he wrote a hymn that expressed his joy and his new faith. The name of that hymn is, Come Thou Fount. We sang it this morning. Now, I bring this to your attention because of the somewhat strange lyrics that are found in the second verse. We sang, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Now, you don't have to answer this question, but I think it would be interesting if everyone did. And you can answer this question by raising your hand. How many of you have no clue what it means to raise an Ebenezer? Oh, yeah, okay, very good. I didn't for the longest time as well. You see, that line, to raise my Ebenezer, it doesn't pertain to the famous curmudgeon from A Christmas Carol. That line alludes to today's passage where we read, or we heard read, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. That's what those words are alluding to, this passage in Samuel. To raise an Ebenezer is to commemorate someone or to memorialize something. The hymn writer is indicating that he remembers, he acknowledges, and he rejoices in the fact that God helped him that Jesus sought him when he was a stranger and rescued him by his blood. Now that in turn uh, points to the main idea of this passage, which pertains to God helping his people. It's a story of deliverance. And that deliverance encourages repentance. It encourages and mobilizes prayer. And it helps us to remember and commemorate God's grace to us. So let's look at this story. Let's look into this deliverance of Israel, which took place 20 years after the ark had been returned. Oppression leads to sorrow. Israel had the ark. They didn't get the ark back through acts of valor. If you remember, it was returned because God plagued the Philistines. The Philistines had captured the ark in their victory over the Israelites, and God came against them with a heavy hand, and so they returned the ark. They now had possession of the ark, but they didn't have peace. There was no peace with the Philistines who continued to oppress them, and more importantly, there was no peace with God. There was no peace with their covenant Lord because they walked in disobedience. They walked in disobedience through idol worship. And yet after 20 some long years with the ark at Kiriath-Jerim, Israel was finally brought to a place where they lamented their situation. But more importantly, where they lamented after the Lord. Now it's timely that we consider a passage which speaks to lament this week. Because starting next week, Lord willing, we will take a break from 1 Samuel, and we will continue, as we do in the summer, working through the book of Psalms. And you'll see that this summer, there are quite a few psalms of lament that we will consider. If you recall, lament is an expression of grief or of sorrow. And throughout Scripture, lament gives voice to the strong emotions that believers feel because of suffering. Lament is a biblical way of wrestling with things that cause us difficulty, whether that be spiritual, emotional, physical, relational, or theological. It helps us to wrestle with those things, particularly in times of suffering. Lament typically pursues the answer to at least two questions. One, where are you, God? And two, if you love me, why is this happening? I think this was behind the lament of Israel in this passage. And laments can focus on a variety of situations, difficult circumstances in general, sometimes because of what others have done to us, but sometimes because of the sinful choices that we have made. Israel's lamenting in today's story is a result of both those things, a combination of both their hard circumstances and their own sinful choices. Now, understand, lament is not the opposite of praise. Lament is a pathway to praise. And when our lamenting is caused, at least in part, by our own sin... Then the pathway to praise must also traverse the valley of repentance. Israel was in need of spiritual cleansing. They were in need of spiritual renewal. And their godly sorrow was a precondition of that process, but it didn't end there. Israel's corporate lament reminds us this morning of our need for godly lament, which also includes our need for repentance. Repentance. If our sorrow is connected in any way to our sin, Israel's lament was definitely connected to sin. Sin that required more than just godly sorrow, more than just lament, it required them to repent. Israel serves the Lord. In declaring their intention to return to the Lord, Israel is prepared to repent. Now, repentance has been defined over the years and described over the years in many different ways. I really like how Puritan Thomas Watson deals with repentance in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. He teaches that true repentance consists of six things, four of which we see clearly in today's passage. Repentance, in the very least, includes a sight of sin, sorrow for sin, The confession of sin and a turning from sin. We have seen that there was sorrow for sin. We we just talked about it. Israel lamented after the Lord. And we will see shortly that they saw their sin and they confessed their sin. Verses 3 and 4 make it clear that they actually forsook their sin. Samuel directed them both positively and negatively. Positively, they were to direct their heart to the Lord and serve him only. But negatively, they must put away the foreign gods and the ashtaroth. They must forsake the sin of idolatry if there is to be renewal. Now, their godly sorrow, their lament, fueled their forsaking of sin. Because we read that the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Now, Ashtarith, or Astarte, as she was generally known, was a goddess of fertility and of war. And she was a consort of Baal. Now, Baal, his name means lord or owner or husband. He was also a god of fertility, but also the god of storm. And so, Israel demonstrated the legitimacy of their lament and eventually their full repentance by forsaking their sin. They stopped with their idol worship. Brothers and sisters, we all battle sin. And that battle will not cease until we die or until Christ returns. As we repent, let us be those who truly repent. Let us forsake our sin. But let us understand this morning, that the aspect of repentance that is forsaking our sin has a corresponding aspect. And that is us fixing our heart on God, directing our hearts to the Lord, worshiping him and serving him. Samuel commanded Israel to direct their heart to the Lord and serve him only. Yes, repentance is turning from sin, but it's turning to God and directing our hearts that way. And so our repentance must include a deliberate and determined directing of our mind and our will and our desires, directing them to God. Perhaps, even in this moment, God, by His Spirit, has convicted you of a sin that you need to repent of. I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to see and to acknowledge your sin And having seen it, lament it. If you have no sorrow for your sin, then pray that God would help you to see it for what it truly is. To see it in light of his love and his mercy. To see it in light of the grace that he has shown you through Jesus Christ. And then confess your sin. Certainly confess your sin to God. And possibly confess your sin to a brother or sister in the faith whom you trust. Then, with God's help, with the Spirit's empowerment, forsake the sin and fix your heart on God. Direct your heart to God. Don't forget that last step. How do we do that? How do we direct our heart to God? How do we fix our heart on God? There's many ways. I think two of the most important ways are to read God's Word and to pray. Those are ways God has given us to direct our heart to Him, to fix our heart on Him. I couldn't find the quote this week, but I'm pretty sure it was Spurgeon, who was once asked, what is more important, reading your Bible or prayer? To which Spurgeon replied, what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? These are some of the foundational disciplines that God has given us to fix our heart on him, to direct our heart to him, is his word and prayer. So let's do that. Let's be people who go to God's word that we might direct our heart to him. Let's go to God in prayer that we might fix our heart on him. Let's repent of sin, let's forsake it, and let's serve God. Samuel's call of repentance in response to Israel's desire to return the Lord now moves from something that seems largely individual to something that is more congregational, a solemn assembly where God will respond to Israel's repentance. God attends the righteous. Samuel calls all of Israel, gather at Mizpah, with the purpose of really formalizing their repentance and their renewed relationship with God. And so they gather at this location. It was likely about eight kilometers north of modern-day Jerusalem. And they perform rites as a congregation, rites that are in accordance with their repentance. Now, one of those rites has no precedence in the Old Testament. The commentators are not sure what the purpose was And they take many guesses at it. It is the rite that the pouring out of water before the Lord that has no precedence in the Old Testament. It could be connected to the rite of fasting, which they also perform, perhaps pouring out their water, demonstrating that not only have they forsaken the eating of food as a rite of this repentance, but they're also not drinking water. There's a couple of other suggestions, we're not sure. But they are doing this, they're fasting. Fasting is associated with mourning and with confession and repentance. And they also confess their sin, saying, we have sinned against the Lord. Their individual repentance, their isolated repentance has spilled over into this gathering where they as a nation repent together under the wise and watchful eyes of Samuel. Now, I want you to imagine yourself being part of that throng of worshipers at Mizpah. Just imagine, if you will, the the pain and the strain, both emotionally and physically, of repentance. The the spiritual angst of confessing sin and coming before God. The, The physical pain that's associated with fasting. The spiritual burden that we Carry, because of sin. Think about it for a minute. You're gathered with the throng. You're at Mizpah. You're with Israel. And as you repent, that burden starts to lift. Hope starts to penetrate the sadness and sorrow. Hope in God, hope in the covenant, hope in peace. And then in the midst of this turning to the Lord as this hope has only just begun to materialize in your mind and in your heart, there's a rumor. A rumor that unsettles an already unsettling assembly. The lords of the Philistines, they are approaching, and they are approaching to make war. That newfound hope is threatened. Now, the Philistines, they would have seen this assembly of the nation of Israel in one of two ways, both which amount to rebellion. It could have been the case that the Philistines forbade gathering as a large group. And so when they saw Israel gather as a nation, they figured that was some sort of insurrection. More likely, the Philistines feared the gathering itself was an act of war because this is what they used to do in the Near East in ancient times. Before they assembled for war, they assembled for worship. And the Philistines may have seen this as a precursor to war. And so they were having none of it. And so there we are in the throng of God's people repenting, having heard the rumor of war, and then actually the, their sworn enemies, the Philistines, our sworn enemies, are approaching. The people who had oppressed them are marching towards Mizpah. And so the nation appeals to Samuel. They say, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The nation asks Samuel to intercede in prayer for them. And so Samuel took a young lamb and made a burnt offering to the Lord. The offering of a nursing lamb is is prescribed in Exodus as an atoning sacrifice. And having made atonement for Israel, Samuel, Samuel, we're told, cries out to the Lord for Israel. Now, this is an excellent example of what many people now call intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is the act of praying on behalf of others. And there are many examples in the Old Testament of this happening. Abraham did it, Moses did it, David did it, Hezekiah did it, Elijah did it, Jeremiah did it, Ezekiel did it, and Daniel did it. Daniel is recognized as showing us a particularly thorough model of intercessory prayer in Daniel 9, 3 through 19. In that passage, we see that intercessory prayer is characterized by fervency, by self-denial, and by identifying with God's people. We see in it that prayer for others, intercessory prayer, is strengthened by confession, that it's dependent upon God's character, and that it has God's glory as its goal. And so perhaps a question we could ask ourselves this morning is, does intercessory prayer play a regular role in my spiritual disciplines? Do I regularly pray with passion for God's people? Do I regularly identify with them and lift them up to God? And in praying for them, do I ultimately seek the glory of God and the answer to that prayer? I was encouraged in preparing this sermon by the title of an article by pastor and theologian Kevin DeYoung. The article's title was this. When learning to pray, it's okay to borrow and steal. See, DeYoung suggests a practice which I have increasingly come to appreciate over the last few years, the practice of using the prayers of other people to help me pray. So as an example, consider this prayer from the first century century. Bishop of Rome, Clement. He prayed, Creator of all, preserve unbroken those you have called through your Son, Jesus Christ. He has called us from darkness to light, from ignorance to knowing the glory of his name. Lord, our hope rests on your name, the creator of every living creature. You have opened the eyes of our heart to know you. You behold the depths and are eyewitnesses to everything we have done. You are the savior of those in despair. You help those in danger. You are the creator and guardian of all. You multiply the nations of the earth, and you have chosen all who love you through Jesus Christ, your beloved son. I beg you, Lord and Master, be our help and encouragement. Rescue those among us who are facing hard times. Have mercy on the lowly. Lift up the fallen, show yourself to the needy, heal the ungodly, convert the wanderers among your people, feed the hungry, release our prisoners, raise up the weak, comfort the faint-hearted, let all unbelievers know that you alone are God, that Jesus Christ is your son, and that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Amen. What a wonderful prayer. And taking that prayer and personalizing it and using it to pray for people that you know can be a great aid to you in intercessory prayer. Let me commend that practice to you of using other people's prayers and adopting them. There are five books of prayers which I can recommend to you from firsthand experience. The Valley of Vision, Fount of Heaven, Prayers of the Early Church, piercing heaven, prayers of the Puritans, prone to wander, prayers of confession and celebration, and streams of mercy, prayers of celebration and mercy. Now, let me just stop for a minute. Often after I give a list of books or a longer list of scriptures, I often get people saying, Pastor Jude, you spoke too fast. I couldn't write it down. I'm looking for those. You can do one of two things. You can wait until the sermon is loaded online, and you can find the spot in the sermon and write them down again, or just email me. Email me, say, Pastor Jude, what were those books you mentioned? And I'll email you back. So you don't need to write them down, now. But those are five books that I recommend to you. And so whether you use other people's prayer as a framework for your own prayer, or you pray extemporaneously using your own words, let us see in the story of Samuel the importance of intercessory prayer. Let's endeavor to regularly pray for others particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it's clear, when we compare this confrontation between Israel and Philistine, and we compare it to the one that happens in, in chapters four through six, when the ark is captured, we learn that though it may be futile to try and coerce God, it is fruitful to cry out to God in prayer. And we see in the next verses the result of Samuel's intercession. The Lord thunders. The end of verse 9 indicates that the Lord heard Samuel's intercessory prayer for Israel. The initial deliverance for Israel was a work of God and God alone. Now, it is clear from the information that we have from antiquity that when there was a storm and that storm had thunder in it, it was a significant moment in the time of those ancient people. They perceived thunder as the presence of deity and in the context of judgment. And so however this played out in this battle, both the Philistines and the Israelites knew that this thunder was from Israel's God and he was moving in judgment against the Philistines. You know, Scottish soldiers from well back in their nation's history used the bagpipes as a means of signaling the troops. Here in North America, they used a bugle, but in Scotland, they used bagpipes, and regiments from the Scottish highlands revived this tradition in the modern era. They would have pipers play to their comrades in battle. And the sound of the pipes would boost the morale of the Scottish soldiers, and it also intimidated the enemy. They know it intimidated the enemy because pipers were specific targets for snipers, and many of them died in the war. And so they wanted to quiet that noise in a similar way. This thundering of God scares the Philistines and it strengthens Israel. In 1 Samuel 2.10, Samuel's mother Hannah prayed prophetically saying, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And this played out in dramatic fashion at the battle of Mizpah. Now Samuel's and the rest of Israel's response to deliverance is memorable. Raising an Ebenezer. The use of boundary stones, or the use of marking stones, often that had inscriptions in them, was widespread throughout the Middle uh, the Near East. You see a lot of these, and they've dug up a lot of them, and archaeologists have found many of them. And oftentimes, these stones were named, and they were believed to be under divine protection. And in fact, there were curses against those who would move these stones. Sometimes that curse was even in the inscription on the stone to caution those who might think of moving them. We see it in the Old Testament. The patriarch Jacob made use of a stone to memorialize an important event in his life. If you recall, Jacob's dream of the ladder ascending to heaven, a dream in which God promised Jacob many blessings, Jacob used a stone to identify this as a significant episode in his life. We read in Genesis 28, 18 and 19, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Likewise, Joshua twice erected stones to commemorate God's deliverance. In one example, we read after the crossing of the Jordan River, the people came out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. So Samuel does something similar. Samuel raises up a stone, a stone that he names Ebenezer, which is probably best translated the stone of help. And the narrator makes it plain that this stone was to commemorate God helping Israel. And we see in the story that God's help was comprehensive. The Philistines were subdued and did not enter into Israel's territory again until the time of Saul. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. Their victory and ensuing dominance over the Philistines was so decisive that we're told even the Amorites made peace with the Israelites. And so it was comprehensive. Now, one way we can make application this morning in regards to this idea of commemorating God's work in our life is given to us by Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was an Anglican clergyman, a a biblical commentator from the 1700s. And he addressed the importance of commemoration in two sermons on these verses. They were entitled Memorials of God's Goodness and the Duty of Commemorating God's Mercies. Listen to what Simeon says. External and visible monuments... Are very proper expressions of national gratitude. But as individuals, we must erect very different memorials. We must get a sense of God's goodness engraved not on stone, but on our hearts. We need not to form inscriptions on stone or brass. We are concerned rather to have the mercies of our God written upon our hearts. But here is our great fault. We do not keep his great goodness in remembrance. To commemorate God individually is to engrave on our own hearts the goodness and the mercy of God. Simeon goes on to note that Samuel's raising of an Ebenezer teaches us that we should all review our past mercies, we should view the hand of God in those mercies, And we should make our experience of past mercies the very ground of expecting that God will provide everything we need. He gives two tips on how we can personally commemorate God's mercies. Let me share them with you. Number one, Simeon says, take now a review of all that God has done for you in times past. Let those who are living as without God in the world "'Contemplate God's forbearance towards them. "'Let those who have been brought out of darkness "'into the marvelous light of the gospel "'survey the riches of divine grace "'displayed towards them. "'Let believers bring to their remembrance "'their manifold temptations, "'their grievous backslidings, "'their repeated falls, "'or if they have been kept from falling, "'the almost miraculous assistance "'by which they have been upheld. "'Then will the example before us have its due effect, "'and God will receive the glory Due to his name. His second point is this. He says, Look forward now to all that you can need from God in times to come. Be not disheartened by the sight of all your necessities, but remember that however great they be, God is able to supply all your need out of his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Call to mind the promises of help which God has given you in his word. See how ample they are, how repeated, how strong. Though thou art but a worm, yet through him thou shalt thresh the mountains. In a full persuasion of this, commit your every concern to him and expect that he will be a very present help to you in every time of need. And so we can and we should commemorate the mercies of God. We should engrave them on our heart, regularly reviewing them. And then moving beyond looking back to looking ahead and anticipate his goodness to us in all our needs in the future. And Simeon suggests, and I agree with him, that's one of the things we can take from this story of Samuel raising an Ebenezer. But brothers and sisters, I would be remiss if I did not remind you this morning and declare to unbelievers this morning that the greatest of God's mercies, the most glorious goodness he has shown us is his work of redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so as we consider commemorating God's goodness, as we consider memorializing his mercy, we must remember that one of the ways that we see God's goodness and mercy towards us is that all of us have not been immediately judged and condemned for our sins. God is our creator is owed our allegiance and our love and our obedience. And yet our sin screams with a clenched fist in the face of God that we do not honor him, we do not love him, and we do not obey him. And the punishment for that should and could have been immediate, and yet God is gracious. We all sit here this morning on padded seats and cool conditioned air instead of gnashing our teeth in the flames of eternal punishment. That is a great mercy and goodness of God, people. We see God's goodness and mercy towards us and that he provided a way for our sins to be forgiven, a way for us to be reconciled to him, a way to have eternal life. And the grace of that remedy is in stark contrast to what we deserve. We see God's goodness and mercy in that it was his own son that accomplished redemption for us, receiving the punishment we deserved, suffering in our place. We see God's goodness in that this offer of redemption, this offer of salvation goes out to all. We need only repent of our sins, turning from them and turning to God and to believe and trust in Jesus and his work on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, believers, remember and review and acknowledge and rejoice this goodness and mercy often. Commemorate it in your heart and see your future in light of it. An unbeliever, avail yourself of this boundless mercy. Avail yourself of this bottomless good. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus and entrust yourself to his work on the cross. Our story concludes looking at Samuel, the life of Samuel. This passage ends with a summary of Samuel's life and ministry. Samuel served as a judge for Israel throughout his life, and he made a circuit through Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah to judge the people and After each circuit, he would return to his home in Ramah, and there he would judge people, and he built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. But perhaps more importantly this morning, as we see in this passage, that God helps his people. And so we can let his gracious deliverance of Israel encourage us this morning, to encourage us to be people who lament when we see the difficult things in life that we will all see, to lament of our sin when we fall short of all that God has called us to. We can let his mercy to the Israelites spur us on to repentance. We can let his goodness to those people of God encourage us as people of God to pray and to cry out for those who are our brothers and sisters. And so let us remember his goodness. Let us remember his grace. Let us remember his mercy. And most of all, let us remember those things in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let a commemoration of that glorious and gracious event give us faith for the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Father God, that your spirit would help us to be people who apply your word to our lives. And I pray, Father God, we would be people who learn increasingly how to raise an Ebenezer, how to commemorate and memorialize as individuals your goodness and grace and mercy and help to us. And I pray, Father God, specifically, you would see that through the gospel of Jesus Christ that would impact us every day. Father God, that it would call us to repentance, that it would call us to pray, and it would call us to continue to commemorate, memorialize your help in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.